But for this moment now, we're going to reflect on a few passages of Scripture. And if you can think back to two weeks ago, we talked about a passage in 1 John chapter 2 from verse 18. And really what Paul's done so far is he's painted a scene. He's given us a context. He said, I, I, I want you to be aware that you will find yourself in a society and in a world that is full of deception and that is full of lies. And so he talked and painted that scene, explored it a little bit, not so that we could all leave discouraged, but hopefully so that we could leave prepared, remembering that John is writing with this father's heart. He's an older gentleman, and he's concerned that his children, his, his kids, are prepared for what they will face, as every father would be. I don't want to just so shelter my children that they have no awareness or no concept of the reality of the world out there. I don't want to go to the extreme and expose them to things they shouldn't be exposed to either. But I want them to be prepared. I want them to be ready, not so that they're discouraged, but so that they're prepared for what they would face. And it's not just John who paints this scene. We looked last time at some of the writings of Paul, particularly to Timothy, first and second Timothy, and he continually reminds his spiritual son in the faith, be ready. There will be lies, there will be deception, it won't be all smooth sailing. We, of course, uh, looked last year at the writings of Peter as well, who does the same, the book of Jude. And even Jesus himself continually warns both his disciples, but also us as we read his words some thousands of years later, to be on our guard. There will be false teaching. There will be deception around. And we need to be ready. And, and I think you look at the full weights of all of those scriptures and you've got to come to two conclusions. Number one, <clears throat> that the battle is real. There is a reality in which we live in a world of deception. That's what the enemy has done since the very beginning, since the Garden of Eden. He's questioned who God is and what God said was true. The temptation of Jesus, what did he question? Are you the Son of God? And he continues to bring lies and deception. So number one, the battle is real, but also number two, and I think this is more John's concern, is that as humans, we are often easily distracted at best or at worst deceived. And so we painted this scene a couple of weeks ago of a world that's shaped far more through Facebook and online media. I'm not trying to say that Facebook is evil, although I could probably preach a sermon or two on that. But it's a world that's shaped not by truth, but by opinion. And so this is all, this is all uh, by way of review. Verse 21 we covered where John says, I'm not writing to you because you do not know the truth. I'm actually writing because you do know the truth. But you've got to allow the truth to shape your life. Don't be so easily swayed. Don't just move in response to whatever the world is saying. Build your life on the foundation and the reality of truth. And so I want us to focus, we got down to about verse 24. Hopefully that gives you enough context for those who weren't there. And I want to talk about the framework of truth. What is the framework of truth? What does it actually look like? We don't want to be so concerned by everything that's going on in the world. Quite the opposite. If we're going to be prepared and ready, we've got to be aware of what the real deal is. If you want to spot a counterfeit, you don't go looking at every possible counterfeit that's around. You convince yourself of the reality of what is true, what is the genuine article. So the framework of faith, verse 24, chapter 2, it says this. 
This is John speaking in this area of having painted the context. So he says this, Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. Two key phrases, what you've heard from the beginning, we'll come back and look at that, and allow that to abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So here we have what I would present to you as the framework of truth. It's a foundation. What you've heard from the beginning, what is that? What's he referring to? Well, we could nail it down to two essential realities. First of all, he's talked about who Jesus is. Verse 22, he said, who is the lie? Who is the deceiver? It's him who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That is central to his thing. That's central to the pillar of what he has proclaimed and what he's now calling them back to. Never lose sight of who Jesus is. Let your faith rest on the reality of him, of what he's accomplished, of who he is. There's so many opinions about Jesus, but we'll move on. And what you've heard from the beginning also refers to the teaching of the apostles. So we would say the scriptures. What you've heard from the beginning, let that abide in you. But it doesn't stay there. He says, if, you've, if you abide in what you've heard from the beginning, what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So there's this foundation, what you've heard. If that abides in you, then it leads us somewhere. It leads us not just to more principles. It leads us to the reality of a person. And I want to look at this link here between the foundation of truth being the very thing that leads us towards the reality of who Jesus is and his love expressed through this framework of truth. And then in turn, it says, verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. So it's a framework that begins with a foundation that leads us to the promise of a person and the reality of eternal life. So let's examine that. Let's just delve right in and see where we get to. Are you ready? Okay, three of us are ready. The others will hopefully catch up as we go along. <laughs> so it's interesting as we read this passage of Scripture and as John has talked about the need for truth and now he's talked about really the framework of truth, truth being a foundation, truth being a framework that leads us somewhere, that he never specifically delves into exactly what the false teaching of the time was. And if we look at church history, there's been a number of false teachings that have arisen that would erode or uh, diminish this importance of the foundation of truth. And I would suggest in our current age, there's probably two broad camps that we could label as the greatest obstacles or the greatest hindrances to truth. And so what I want to do is establish, look at both of those, establishing the need and the essential nature of this foundation of truth. And those camps, very loosely, there's probably others as well, would be people who'd say, well, first of all, I'm in the camp of, I don't believe anything. What, what is the, the purpose of truth? Does truth have any purpose? Is it still relevant? Do we actually even need truth? I don't believe anything. Or the second, the second camp, the second statement that I hear regularly, that you probably do too, is, well, actually, I believe everything. I just want to believe a bit of everything. I don't want to believe that there's any um, definite one reality. I want this all-inclusive understanding that kind of is so broad that it includes it. I want to believe everything. I don't believe anything. 
or I believe everything. And I want to examine those a little bit closer. First of all, let's unpack this one of I don't believe anything. Is truth actually necessary? And if so, why is truth necessary? And then we'll relate that to how that affects us as believers. I had a conversation probably about six weeks ago now, and uh, I don't have a particular place that I go to to get my hair cut, but I thought uh, the last time I was in need of a haircut, which I probably am now, you're all going to be looking at my hair now, aren't you? Look at my hair. But I thought I'd try out the, the new barber shop that opened around the corner in Fishwick. It's just up the road here, recommend it, and they don't pay me to give them a plug. But I went in there and there was the guy who owned the shop and he had a, a new uh, assistant who was there and he was the one who happened to cut my hair. So I opened up a conversation with him, didn't know about anything about him, he didn't know me. And so we were chatting, asked him a bit, a bit about his journey and his life and he said he had a very troubled upbringing. And I said, well, how did you get into hairdressing? It's not top of the list of, of many blokes' callings in life. I mean, it is for some. And he said, well, it's interesting. I, I just had a passion to help people tried a few different things out and I got here in the barber shop and I just found my place in life. It's just wonderful. I love it. I really enjoy it. So that's fantastic. So we'd had this good conversation and then all of a sudden he said, so what do you do for a living? The conversation always comes up. And I said, well, I'm a pastor from the church around the corner. And all of a sudden there was silence. <laughs> he was like, oh. And I could hear that. I could hear, you know, when you just hear the baggage and the emotion he was like oh this conversation was going so well and now it's over so I thought well either I can leave it there and he can cut my hair in silence or I'll ask him a few questions so I said well you know what's your journey what do you believe and he made that statement well I don't believe anything I don't I don't believe anything anything at all I said okay so you don't believe there's a God he said no I, I don't believe that there is a God I don't believe there's anything there. And I said, well, how can you be sure? And I'm summarizing a longer conversation just to give you the gist. I said, how can you be sure? Can you prove it? He thought about it for a moment. He said, well, I don't have to prove it. I mean, it's just obvious, isn't it? I don't have to prove that there is no God. It's just the, the obvious answer. And I said, well, based upon what? He said, well, it's the best option. And so I said this to him I made this statement I said so what you're saying is that you can't prove it but you believe that it's the best option he said well yeah and I said well there you go so you just do believe in something told me in the beginning you didn't believe in anything and you see there is this reality that we cannot escape belief we want to but every worldview it has a belief and belief has a foundation and the, the foundation of our belief is truth and a lot of us in our, well, certainly in conversations I have with people, there's a lot, of, a, a lot of individuals who want to fall under the banner of an agnostic, thinking that that is a label that then excuses them from having any belief. And an agnostic says that I don't believe we can ever know. And as I always like, whenever anyone uses that label, I say, well, I'm an ag agnostic. I like to ask him this question. Well, how do you know for certain? How do you know? Because... The truth of agnosticism is that it's based on a belief that we can know that in the, the certainty of uncertainty, that we can know for certain that there is nothing that we can know for certain. And if you think about that, it'll do your head in, and it requires a great deal more faith than I could ever have. 
See, we cannot escape belief. Belief, even agnosticism, is a statement of belief in a truth in the certainty of uncertainty. Every worldview has at its essence a belief. Let me illustrate it this way. Someone who I know I quote from often is Ravi Zacharias, writes a lot in the area of apologetics. And he tells this story. He said one day he was heading to hold a lecture at Ohio State University. It's one of the largest universities in the country. And as he was picked up by a host who he didn't know, they happened to be driving past a brand new building just completed, the Wexner Center for Performing Arts. The host looked at him and said with great pride, Ravi, have a look. This is America's first postmodern building. Ravi was a little surprised. He said, oh, what is a postmodern building? And his host, driving him along, said, well, the architects has said very proudly that he designed this building with no purpose in mind. There's pillars, there's stairways, there's flowing. It's all designed to reflect the capriciousness of life. So Ravi thought for a moment, and he said to this guy driving a car, his host, he said, well, here's an interesting question. Did the architect take the same liberty with the foundation? Think about that for a moment. All of a sudden, there was silence. And this is Ravi's conclusion. He says, you see, you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we like, but we dare not fool with the foundation because it will call our bluff in a hurry. A building with no foundation is no building at all. A world with no belief and a belief founded on truth is no world at all. It's an untenable position. Truth must by nature and does exist. We want to deny its reality, but it is there. Every worldview has a basis in belief, and belief has a foundation of truth. Now that brings us to the Christian. You see, this is the wonderful thing about the Christian worldview, is that so often we're criticized, well, Christian, it's just it's built on fancy, it's built on you know, fairy tales and, and whatever else people might want to say. But for the Christian, truth is, real, tr- truth is rooted in reality. It's rooted in the reality of Christ, of who he is, and who the Bible and scriptures prophesy and prove him to be. And not only what he did, but why he did it. It's this complete world view. And I am convinced the more I study scripture, the more I journey, the more I examine differing worldviews, that we have the only truth that truly holds weight. The only truth that gives purpose, meaning, and fulfillment to life and answers the longings of the human heart. The belief of some kind is inescapable. And that's why John is saying here, let what you've heard be your foundation. Let it be the foundation. And our joy is to point people towards the foundation that truly lasts. We can argue about the building, but it's the foundation that truly matters. To point people, what, what is the foundation? What is it that your life's truly built on? So that's the first camp saying, well, I, I'm, I don't believe in anything. And I've never encountered someone yet when they actually think through it who cannot come to a place and say, well, actually, yes, I do believe in something. There is a belief and there is a truth claim that fundamentally underpins my belief in nothing. The second camp is, okay, well, so maybe truth does exist, but what about those, which is a very common view, have these discussions all the time, who say, all right, well, it does, but why, why don't we believe everything? Why can't we just expand truth so that it is all 
inclusive. And in fact, I would say very regularly in conversations, the biggest hindrance that I've encountered from people to believing in the Christian view is its exclusivity. Is that a word? Exclusivity? Exclusivity. And it's intolerance. And I had one of these conversations with a couple that I, I love very dearly. They're both highly educated, highly intellectual. This is early this year, probably about three months ago. We're sitting down talking about a whole variety of things, having a lovely discussion. And it wasn't one of those, you know, sometimes you can enter into those heated, pointless arguments. And normally when they come, I'm like, you know what? This is not going to bear any fruit. But they were open, genuinely asking questions. And I said at one point, what is your greatest hindrance to the Christian message? Like, what, what is it boiled down to for you? What, what is the thing that is blocking you from actually receiving this? And I said straight away, it's the exclusivity. It's the intolerance. How is it that any worldview can say that some people are okay and some people are not? It's a very common view. I'm sure you would have encountered people, come across people with exactly that argument, not only about Christianity, but about religion in general. I said, all right, let's think that through for a little bit. Give me an example. What is one example that you can give me of the intolerance and exclusivity of my worldview versus your worldview? And straight away they said, well, what about marriage? It's a very common topic that people like to discuss. See, we believe that marriage should not just be a man and a woman. It should be a man and a man. But your view is intolerant and it's exclusive and says marriage should only be between a man and a woman. I said, all right, well, let's talk about that. Great. Who wants to have a debate about that? Fantastic. Wonderful. And I said, first of all, let me just say that what you're saying is true. Absolutely. The Bible says very clearly that God's intention for marriage is one man and one woman. Not only that, is that his desire, but that's his best for the good of humanity. The man was created from man, came woman who's the perfect complementary mate for man and the two become one. It's not just something to be upheld, it's something to be celebrated as God's perfect plan for individuals, God's perfect plan for family and God's perfect plan for society. I said, absolutely. But it's based on his heart that is a heart of love to give us truth that, will, uh, that is the boundaries for what is good and right for us as people and as humanity. And I said to them, I said, okay, so I understand that you differ on that particular point of view and bear with me, I know it's a long story, but we're getting to a point, I promise. Uh, I said to them, so what do you think then about the case of expanding marriage further? What about we say, let's just open marriage up, forget just, two people what, what, what if we said marriage is five people or ten people or just a community marriage where we share everything and, and they said straight away it was very interesting and often I encounter this I said well no that's absolutely wrong that's absolutely wrong and I said okay so why is it wrong and I, I want to get to the basis of why they have decided that this particular definition the Christian definition is no longer valid but their definition of valid still is uh, definition of marriage still is valid, and so we went round the circle for quite some time. The end conclusion was that there was no def definable basis for their moral bias towards defining marriage in the way that they had. And this is the point I made. This is the point I would make to us: is the reality is that both of our views were equally as exclusive and intolerant. See, the world says, well, this view is all about tolerance. But in reality, both views were equally as exclusive, equally as intolerance. The only difference 
difference was mine was based upon the God who I'm convinced is real and his best for humanity. And theirs was based upon their personal view of what happened to be right in their bias of morality. Fascinating. Now, the conversation didn't go much further and we moved on. But my point is this. Everybody draws the line differently. For them, it was, well, this is right and that's wrong. And if we really think about it, if truth does exist, then we will draw the line at some point. There will be a point where we say, no, this is right and that's wrong. For every single person on the planet, there is a line. If truth exists, then there must be a truth line. Here is the problem is that truth by definition is exclusive. Therefore, every worldview is exclusive at its core. If truth was all-inclusive, then nothing would be false. And if nothing was false, then there is no truth. And we just established that truth does exist, that we can't get away from belief. And if we have belief, then we can't get away from a foundation of that which is true. Is this making sense? We're following along. An all-inclusive community simply cannot ever exist, either theoretically or in reality. It just is a myth. It just is a myth. And in fact, the exact opposite is true. What I want to suggest to us is that truth actually provides the framework for the fullest expression of love. We'll get there in a minute. See, the sadness for me, not only about that conversation, but about a lot of conversations, I know that all of us have entered into... Uh, pointless and useless debates at times about different moral issues. But there's often conversations that I have, as this one was, where these people were genuinely searching and genuinely wanting to make decisions based on what they felt were moral and right choices. There was no maliciousness there. To, they were genuinely, this is what my conscience is telling me, that the only way that we can show love is to move the boundaries of that which has been defined as truth. And I think that's tragic because we will never make the world a more loving place by removing morality and redefining truth. In fact, the exact opposite will always occur. It's a downward spiral. The more we remove it, the more we head in a direction that's away from all things that are good, all things that are pure, all things that are holy. So I want us to just think about this premise of truth providing a framework for the fullest expression of love. Remember back in 1 John chapter 2, he says this, so let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. So that's the foundation. Let that abide, not the new version, not what the world's saying, that the reality, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of Scripture, that which will never change, His word will never fail, it'll endure. Let that be the foundation. But the foundation actually leads us somewhere. Because if you've heard from the, if what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. You see, if, if that abides in us, it's not just leading us to a greater understanding of the principles. We're not just here to point the world to better principles and a better way of living. We're here to point them to a person. We're here to point them to a radical relationship, but it's a relationship that can only find its fullest expression within the boundaries of that which is true. I want to illustrate this from a couple of different perspectives. So bear with me. First of all, Expression in terms of unity within the church. I, I heard a, um, 
An interesting message this past week, a pastor by the name of Andy Stanley, he's a very prominent minister from the US, they've got a church doing some good things over there, and he was preaching at a combined churches conference, and his message was effectively to summarize it, that church unity and loving one another is more important than theological correctness. That was his premise, and there's a lot of good things that he had to say there. I mean, who knows that for centuries, the church has been divided by little niggly things that in the scheme of eternity don't make much difference. The problem was the heart of his message was actually to pitch unity against theology. That love is only going to be found if we don't worry about being theologically correct. Now this is fascinating because what John says here is actually the opposite. That if we want true unity, then we have to know what it is that we actually believe. And that our love and our unity is not found in the absence of what we believe, but it's found within, in its fullest expression, within the framework of what we do believe. Just bear with me. Turn, to, turn back a page or two to 1 John chapter 1, because I want you to see this in his heart of what he's writing. And he says in his opening statements, talking about the truth that we've seen, that we've known, we've touched it, and that he's now proclaiming to us. In verse 3 of chapter 1, 1 John, he says, That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. We're telling you the truth. I'm telling you the reality. I'm calling you to know what you believe in. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. His fellowship with them was based on the reality of what they knew and understood. And then in turn, he said, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So our unity is actually based upon our combined reality and understanding of that which is true. It finds its fullest expression within the framework of truth. We've got to be so careful. You know, I love hearing from different streams of the church and you know, we're part of certain streams and flavors, but I tell you what, I am so concerned as I look around and I see the, the depth and the prevalence of that which is just rubbish theology. There's so much of it around and we fall for it like it's a hungry load of fish and in goes a little anchor and there's a thousand people jumping. We just, we just run to the stuff and we've got to be so careful that in our pursuit of love, in our pursuit of what we're called to do, that we don't throw our theology out of the window. Let's just look at this for a moment on a personal level as well. And then we'll bring this to a, a conclusion because I want to leave time for the kids to pray. But on a personal level, I think this is fascinating. We spend a lifetime so often trying to convince people who we are in order to be loved. There's entire industries built upon making us different than what we are. Better, better looking. The lighter version of you, the more advanced version, the new improved you. All of it, I believe, at its core is so that we feel okay about ourselves and that others will love us more. That we'll love ourselves and that others will love us. But it's an interesting paradox because for someone to truly love you, they must know who you are. Otherwise, it's not true love at all. Just think about this. You don't love someone for who they're not. You love someone for who they are. 
If you've never known truth in your relationships, then you've never truly known love. And here's the point. Love does not exist in the absence of truth. Love exists when there is truth, where there's correct judgment that has been made, and it therefore provides the framework for love's fullest expression. Just look at the marriage covenant. The fullest expression of human love is found where? In this covenant made between two people for life. I will lay down my life for you. The fullest expression of human love. And see, here is what I believe is so incredibly wonderful about the Christian worldview. See, God knows exactly what we're like. And John's talked about this, saying God is light. There is nothing hidden from him. He knows exactly what we're like, and he chooses to love us, not for who we're not, but for who we are. There's no hidden secrets tucked away in a dark closet. There's no secret shame we need to cover up. There's nothing that he sees and looks at us and thinks, well, if I'd known that about you, I might have had second thoughts. He knows the stuff, warts and all, and yet he still came. He still came to demonstrate to us what true love really is. That struggle that we feel in the heart of our humanity, the struggle for purpose, the longings of the human heart, satisfied as we come into his truth and find the full expression of his perfect love. Found not in the absence of truth, but fully expressed within its reality. And so just to finish off with, so he then says we've got the framework, which is the foundation, which leads us not just to principles, but to a person. And verse 25, and then there is a promise. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. This is the promise. Well, what is this eternal life? John 17, 3 is a great definition. John says this, same person who wrote 1 John. says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that we would know. That's his promise. That's the greatest promise he could ever give. Here's the promise. You'll have truth as a foundation that leads you to a person that you would experience the radical love that he offers us. He offers to you and me. Love that's found fully expressed within that reality. He goes on, he says, and, and verse 28, it says, Little children abide in him so that when he comes, we will have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. How many mothers have ever come in to the kids? I shared a few weeks ago, catching our kids in the pantry. Doesn't matter what we seem to do, even the youngest one finds a way to get up to that top shelf in the pantry to help herself to whatever she likes. Caught in the act and the shame and the covering up. But John's saying, if, if, if you get this, then you live without shame. Why? You'll not be ashamed because as he comes, you receive the desire of your heart and the longing of every human heart. The limitless, extravagant love of the eternal God. You see, we are heading for a homecoming. I hope you like parties. Does anyone like parties? Because there is a party to end all parties. There is a great celebration. The greatest party humanity has ever seen. 
And here's what John's saying. Don't lose truth because it's truth that leads us there. It's truth that keeps us there. And it's truth that is the framework for the fullest expression of that radical love that we can enjoy today and for all eternity. Amen? Well, we could continue, but I'll just say the same thing over and over again. So we're going to pray. If the worship team can come out. And as I said, if there's... Coming out of verse. Come on, Gilbert. You need a mic. You need a mic. Would you welcome Gilbert? I nearly wear my African shirt too. What am I? Thank you. First uh, Corinthians three uh, eleven. For no other foundation can anyone lay mm-hmm. than that which is laid, yes. which is Jesus Christ. Come on, that's right. What else is Thank there? You. What else is there? The foundation of truth that leads us to the person. The framework that we can experience is radical love. Would you stand this morning? As we pray and conclude, as I said before, the kids are going to come back in at some point. If you'd like prayer, they're specifically praying for physical healing. I know a lot of you were probably prayed for last week with Martin and Roz. But as they encourage, you know, when I've had periods in my life of illness, I press in. I press in and I get as much prayer as I can. So if you'd like them to stand with you in prayer, then come forward in faith and the kids will just lay hands on you. If you'd like prayer for anything else, then you're very welcome to come forward too. And there's a prayer team who will be able to pray for you about any and every other need. But Father, I want to pray for all of us this morning, just as we bring this time to a close. And Lord, I thank you that there is a foundation. There is a foundation that will never fail. There is a foundation that we can build our lives upon and we will not be shaken. And Lord, I pray that we would not only come back to live our lives upon truth, but as Paul says to Timothy, that we would become lovers of the truth. That the truth would not only define our lives, but it would become our proclaiming message. There is truth. There is a foundation that never fails. And there's a reality that points us not just towards to principles, but to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and a framework in which we can live in the fullness of His love. And I pray even now, Lord, that You'd capture our hearts afresh. It's all about you, will always be about you. Until the day that we stand before you in glory. We look forward to that homecoming. That great party. But Lord, I thank you that the celebration doesn't have to wait until then. We can celebrate you now. We can enjoy your goodness and your grace. Even now, just wash over us, Lord, I pray. Bring your joy, bring your life. We pray that in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God.